Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 20th of the 8th and today there will be no discussion of mashed potatoes or any food stuff. Yeah, you've got your money from Big Rice or you don't care, you're moving on. <laughs> There's just so much money in the ricer industry. That'll be blenders next and organic carrots, I know the way this goes. So I just want, before we start it, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Irish Council for Civil Liberties for a tweet they put up. It was about the Taliban. The Taliban have seized uh, US military biometric devices and this is part of a broader story about there are now concerns that uh, Afghanistan had some, you know, some databases, Michael, of people. And people are now concerned that the Taliban may use those databases themselves. Because when you create these things, Michael, it turns out other people can access them. Well, maybe. But I mean, let's face it, it sounds to me that the assumption that the Taliban would use them and for it possibly break privacy cons- privacy laws... Is it is a slight is a tight kind of touch racist? So anyway, the the tweet from the ICCL was uh, it was was in relation to that, and they said that building databases which can identify people by their political leanings, their sexuality, their health status, or any other kind of sensitive identifier is inherently dangerous, and I have to laud the ICCL on taking this brave step forward in their policy. Because that's not always been the ICCL's policy, Michael. Are you saying, Gary, that in the past they may have collaborated with or referred to or praised or even funded or helped out in some way a group that was actively involved in monitoring people's online activity? That's exactly what I'm saying, Michael. So in the ICCL's annual report for 2019, they have a section in it that says, Throughout 2019, the ICCL has supported the work of the Far-Right Observatory, a civil society initiative to map far-right activity in Ireland. Now, the Far-Right Observatory, for those who don't know, is an anonymous collective of left-wing and far-left activists and academics who are, they say, dedicated to mapping the far-right in Ireland. From some of the people I've heard are involved, let's just say their idea of what exactly the far-right constitutes is going to include a lot of people not traditionally seen in the far right, Michael. People you who may be political opponents of theirs more so. The far right observatory is also receiving over €100,000 in taxpayer money right now, although it's receiving it under the legal auspices of Uplift, the progressive um, petition company, because the far right observatory legally outside of that doesn't exist. Uh, there was meant to be an announcement actually from Uplift in late June, early July, about who exactly would be working with the Far-Right Observatory, because now they're getting state money, Michael. And you know, that announcement was never made. Not made yet. Well, they're a bit behind the time now. Oh, well, that happens. It may have been because I reported on the money. Well, we did have a chat about them before, all right. I I can't imagine that would have affected. But you said... You said the ICL said that doing this kind of thing on anybody was dangerous. Well, I said it's inherently dangerous. Oh. And people in the far right are people, are they? I mean, they might not have moral worth, but they're probably still designated as people. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, I just wanted to congratulate the ICCL on you know, the fact that they have clearly stopped working with and supporting the work of the far right observatory, a group who appear to be building databases which can identify people by their political leanings which is apparently inherently dangerous. And I'm certain, Michael, that I will never hear about the ICCL being involved with anything the Far-Right Observatory does in the future. Unless, of course, Michael, 
the ICCL are liars and hypocrites. No, the ICCL have, in the language of our politicians, they have evolved and they have gone on a journey. To where? Well, to wherever they are now, somewhere between Trilly and Kilorgland. The first thing, the first actual story I wanted to talk about is the journal has done a new fact check. Now, this is a fact check about a claim made by Aintu. And they say Aintu have made the claim on a number of occasions. And the claim they say that they are examining is this, Michael. And this is, you know, this is exactly what they're looking at. So it's important to get this right. Gender selection abortion is legal in Ireland and the law allows for the targeting of baby girls. Pretty clear claim, I would think. Do you think that's a clear claim? I think so. I think it's all in English so far. Well, let me assure you, Michael, according to the journal, you are fucking wrong. Ah. So there's a long piece about it, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Because, of course, it's going to be a long piece. And I would sum it up with the words of the reporter who wrote this piece, Ronan Duffy. I fact-check Aintu's claim about gender selection being legal and possible in Ireland. In short, it's a textbook example of claiming something could happen because it's not expressly illegal, regardless of whether or not it's practical or possible. Now, here's what they actually say, Michael. Right. They're talking about exactly that claim. And they went to Tobin, uh, Patter, and Patter said that there's no specific ban on gender selection abortion and that by any normal understanding of the phrase, it must be considered legal. That's a good position in common law, in our kind of law. Right. Things are not expressly illegal, you can do them. Mm, yes, as a general principle, yes. And Patter says, well, on that basis... You know, should a person seek a termination before 12 weeks of pregnancy after determining the gender of an unborn baby, then that would not be illegal, which is true. If you can determine the sex of your baby before 12 weeks and you abort it for that reason particularly, it's not illegal because you don't need to provide any reason or explanation before that point. Correct. So the journal says, in that sense, it is true to say such an instance of gender selection termination could be legal in Ireland. Mm -hmm. However, Michael, however, this claim also omits the crucial context of the likelihood or possibility of this taking place and whether the law therefore allows for the targeting of unborn babies based on their gender. Now, let's ignore the fact, Michael, that the first part of that sentence doesn't actually relate to the second part of that sentence at all. Right. Those are two things which don't matter. Little trick of the journal there, Michael, you may have noted it, where they point out that actually Aintu are right. But in the wider context, Michael, maybe they're not right. And so they've rated the claim as mixture. It says there's elements of truth in the claim, but also elements of falsehood. Well, I can see what they mean. I mean, the claim is true insofar as it's true, but it's not true in the sense that it makes a bad headline. So I can see what they're doing. I mean, that's, that's a, I think that's a reasonable assessment. It's it makes it's true insofar as it's it's a true and accurate account of what the law is, but it's false in that you know really. I mean, you, that's the kind of thing you're going to talk about that might upset people, and you know we all know what you're at, really, Mister Tobin. This is just one of your sleazy attempts to do something that we don't like. So in that sense, it's not really true at all. What they're saying is that nobody in Ireland would do that. So it's just silly. I mean, why would you even talk, talk about it? Is that essentially their argument? Yes, I, I would say that is. Uh, and then what they do, Michael, is, and this is a good one. The entire middle of it is about ultrasound scans. And this is important because this is practically, can you tell the sex before 12 weeks? And they discuss at length that, well, you know, you generally go for 15 to 17 weeks 
for an ultrasound. That's when gender can be identified in an ultrasound. And it talks about the ultrasound at great lengths. Gary, is there another method other than ultrasound by which you can identify the sex of a child? Now, Michael, would the journal do that? Would it produce an entire section at length talking about how it's not possible, even though that was not specifically referred to in the claim before having to actually go to him and have him tell them that actually I was talking about this type of testing, and then they have to put in a little paragraph on it. Do you think the journal would do that? No, I don't. Say it ain't so, Gary. Say it ain't so. In his response to the journal, Tobin claimed that gender selection abortions could be taking place in Ireland because of the increased use of non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPT. And it turns out that that is possible. You can do it at 9 to 10 weeks of pregnancy, which, Michael, you may know from your fine education in Maynooth is less than 12, which would be the cutoff for this. Well, yeah, and remember, postgraduate in the University of Limerick as well, where we did even, we did, we did division as well as multiplication and subtraction. So I, I got there. And the same, Michael, these are not standard tests in, in Ireland. They could cost you up to €450 Euro to have one of these tests done. Ah, well, again, I mean, practically speaking, I mean, who has €450? Euro? Then they, when they say, you know, they're not very common, they ask the professor to estimate how many of them there are. And he says, well, in the rotunda, there's about 9,000 births or so a year, and we would do about 4,000 NIPT tests. 4,000? So you're saying nearly 50% then? Yeah. That's, uh, that seems like a significant enough number, you know, as numbers go. The doctor said the primary reason for the tests is screening, and it is 50-50 whether people use them to determine the sex. There is a box you can tick if you want to know the gender. Also, he says gender, which is absolutely not true. People are interested in the biological sex of the fetus. The fetus is not in a dress. You can't gender it. Also, I am unaware of any testing that's possible at the moment that would I could distinguish a human being in utero whose sex was male but who identified as female well that's a limitation of medical science well who knows what the future may bring but for the time being that's you see Gary you say you never mentioned I mean and neither did you, you never mentioned about there being a box to tick I mean you can't leave details out like that and then throw these stories out impugning the good name of the journal like, there's a 450 quid, there's a box to tick. I mean, there's not even half of the people are having the test done. This is all very shoddy journalism, Gary, and I'm disappointed. And I've got to applaud them, Michael, because when they talk about the wider context, they don't mention again the costs or the fact that as there's a box to tick, you may need a pen. And not everyone is going to have access to a pen at that moment, Michael. So we, we, we mock, but there is a serious point here. The claim as it is, is correct. Whether or not to say something is legal is not the same as saying it is common. It's not even the same as saying it is happening. It is saying it is legal. And under the existing law, it is legal. Now, for the journalist to then turn around and say, well, it's a textbook example of claiming something could happen because it's not expressly illegal, just in the case they don't understand the legal system that they're operating in. Also, I mean, this is a small thing, but it's one of those things, as you know, annoys me slightly. When people use modifiers or qualifiers when they're talking about the law, so expressly legal or technically legal, the law is Technical. There's no such thing as something which is technically legal or technically illegal. It's legal. It's illegal. If it's not expressly, then it's legal. It's not. There isn't. There isn't a third or fourth or fifth category of where you go to the you go court. The court finds well, this falls into category C, where it's not expressly illegal, but it's not expressly legal either. 
So we're, kind of, we're going to go for box four, which carries a different tariff to boxes A and B. It's just, it's either legal or illegal. The law is sadly binary. It's not necessarily clear at all times, as we know from discussions we've had about the legality and of regulations, etc. pandemic, but it is one thing or the other. The journal does bring up points that are worthy of consideration as to practicality, as to the commonness of the practice. That's not what was claimed. If Aintu said this practice is common, they would have had to either provide evidence for it or not. Now, interesting point here is Aintu gave them information about the law. I would be interested to see if the journal asked them if they had any evidence whether or not it was common or practicable. Mm. Because if they didn't, and they then devote most of this to that subject, that would seem dishonest, Michael. There's also this this quite nice line. So you're talking about how, you know, it's despite it not being incorrect that gender selection could theoretically be a person's reason to have a termination in Ireland, the fact there is no evidence of this taking place, in addition to the fact that it would be very, very difficult to do, it would be at best very difficult to do, it cannot be considered correct to say the law does not provide any protection from it taking place. Now, here's the claim of Aintu, Michael. Gender selection abortion is legal in Ireland and the law allows for the targeting of baby girls. Do you know the difference in wording there oh, i'm sorry i'm just having a moment here it's, it's this whole fact checking thing i'm sure when it, somebody came up with this idea at the beginning everybody said oh that's a really good idea all this stuff is going around people are saying all sorts of things are just not we should have somebody who goes out and fact checks and says and everybody said yes great idea and then it devolves or evolves into this kind of nonsense i mean how how genuinely proud can these people be when they do these things i mean at the end of that when you look at that piece of work how much can you look at and say yes i have done a correct rigorous honest balanced fair impartial fact check or i have done a bit of political spade work and i have tried to undermine the claim made by people whose politics are different to mine and whose principles and values I do not share or like. Well, Michael, you asked me that question, but I can't answer because I don't work for the journal and I don't know how they think. In the same way you could ask me, what does a dog think? And I just wouldn't know. Yeah, well, it's just tedious beyond work. And people will say, oh, well, it was fact-checked, you know. And they're... Are, am, I, am I right in remembering that they are one of the, the recognised fact-checkers for Facebook? Oh, they can. If you made this claim on Facebook... And they came back with that rating. Well, it's not a false rating, but it would still be classed as fa uh, by Facebook as you saying something that wasn't uh, totally correct. I think the, the journal seems to have lost the ability in certain circumstances to determine between the facts of the matter and the political context of the matter. Politically, Aintu should be wrong, because that's the good thing. That's what every reasonable person should want. Factually, though, they're right. So we've got to look at the context, Michael, because it would be painful if Aintu were able to, let's say, put up a poster that said, fact check as correct by the journal to that claim. I suppose they're also kind of in a, between a, a rock and a hard place because Aintu are saying this because Aintu and people like Aintu are probably going to introduce some kind of bill into the doll which will prohibit uh, gender-based or gender-selective abortion. And just before the review, Michael, because they two are shameless like that. Yeah. Now, the problem is, if this doesn't happen and wouldn't happen and people in Ireland wouldn't do it, 
Well then, why would anybody object to them introducing such a bill and making it illegal? Because you know, if it's something you're making something illegal, which isn't going to happen anyway, it's a kind of a tricky one. Unless you're going to say, well, it's just a waste of time. Why would you bother wasting all time and making a law to make something illegal, which isn't going to happen and people wouldn't do, and it's not really practical to do anyway. So let's just move on. This is all just nonsense. Instead of just being honest and saying, yes, it is. And you know what? That's the right in Irish law that is given by Irish law to women to make that decision. I, I stopped reading the journal Fact Checks because... I stopped looking at the journal for the most part, and I can only say it's improved my life, Michael. But uh, I only checked that one because I saw that they had fact-checked something about abortion and that Aintu had said, and I knew, Michael, I knew they were going to do this. You knew it in your dark heart. And you might say, you know, this is just accidental. But with the journal, it always seems to be accidental in particular directions. Mm, accidental. There's a hell of a lot of long writing and a lot of obfuscation and jumping over bridges and making connections that are, and ignoring the claim and linking it to some other vague claim for this to be accidental. It's There's a lot of spade work going into doing something by accident. Yeah. Anyway, that's the journal. They are, they are as they always been. I imagine I will write up an article on it at some point. Well... Kudos to you. And it was a, I had plans to do a series of articles in GRIP, Michael, looking at particular articles in um, national Irish newspapers and pointing out how they, not how they had lied, but how, how it had been constructed to give you a particular view of the event. You know, just breaking it down piece by piece. And we got the first one done uh, on a piece that Aoife Murr had done in The Examiner about Fianna Fáil. And uh, I... It's hard to get that stuff through legal, Michael. Because <laughs> you're like, I'm not, I don't want to call them a liar. I just want to say this is designed to give a particular view of the matter. And you can see them kind of looking at you and be like, hmm, that sounds like you're calling them a liar, though. Yeah, they're no fun, are they? Yeah, and you know, implications that they are fundamentally dishonest. And I'm like, well, I'm also theoretically a reporter or a journalist or something of that type, so... Yeah, that's just liars writing about liars then. Surely everyone is fine with that, but no. <laughs> but no. Yeah. Thankfully, I would never say that about anybody. Well, I, it's funny, that you, I'm just considering that I'm sitting here itching to talk about fake news, that, twice, that I should be talking about never calling anybody a liar. The last couple of days, last three or four days, Alcohol Action Ireland have been coming out making claims about cheap alcohol in Ireland and I have been deliberately keeping them from Michael because long-time <laughs> listeners of the show will know what he's like when Alcohol Action Ireland comes out and says something that's just nonsense. So I've just been deliberately not mentioning it to him and as soon as we got on the call today to record, he's just like, have you seen this, this stuff about the, about the cheap alcohol? I've seen what they're saying, Gary. And I was like, oh, well, here we fucking go. <laughs> Okay, I should. I, I don't know why I feel the need to point this out. I would say I have consumed, as it happens, in the last 12 months, maybe two bottles of wine worth of alcohol. I mean, I am, and I have no shares in Guinness or in Irish distillers or any, to my knowledge, I don't hold interest in anybody connected to in, in the, the the production of the supplier, the retail of alcohol. 
But I'm fucking sorry. Excuse me. There's a tweet, right? There's a tweet by News Talk FM, right? Now, let's be fair, because we have to be fair. The first word in this headline on the tweet, which shows an arm reaching out for a bottle of rosé. I mean, we're obviously talking about very low type people here, because let's face it, who would go to a, an off license to deliberately choose rosé? And it's not Chateau de Sour, which is a very nice Merlot Saunier Bordeaux, which I would recommend with a nice bit of roast lamb. Exceptionally cheap alcohol is continuing to drive excessive drinking across Ireland campaigners say the word exceptionally gary is in inverted commas these entre guillemets exceptionally cheap alcohol is across ireland the campaigners say now exceptionally cheap alcohol gary i would love that this could possibly be true in the sense and only in this sense that there was exceptionally cheap alcohol for sale in this country we leave aside continuing to drive excessive drinking. We leave aside the fact, because, you know, I think anybody who's listened to this, unfortunately, more than five times will have heard me observe, and here I go again, I'm sorry, that for the last 20 years, the alcohol consumption in this country has been in decline at exactly the same time when, what else has been happening, Gary? The, offs, the price of off sales of beer, wine and spirits has been in relative and absolute decline because of... The, the arrival of the multiples from Germany and also the presence of Tesco. So you've got the, multi, the the box of 15 bottles or 20 bottles, the cheap gins, the cheap vodka. So the price of alcohol has been in relative and absolute decline. At the same time, we've had consumption in decline. And yet these people insist on driving home the point what? That alcohol is alcohol consumption is correlated with price. So cheap drink means more drinking. And yet, Gary, drink gets cheaper, we drink less. Okay, We're, we'll ignore the fact that when we compare consumption with teenagers in the 90s, consumption of teenagers today, the teenagers are drinking less. They're drinking later. That they are drinking, they're avoiding binging. We're, we'll ignore all that. Exceptionally cheap. Now, there is a story, coincidentally, on the 7th of July, published in the Irish Independent, which starts, the first line of this story is, Ireland is the most expensive country in the EU to buy alcohol and tobacco, according to the latest statistics published by Eurostat's Price Level Index. It found that the consumer price level of Ireland is 180.7, with the baseline, right? Over 100, which is over the median, which is 86.9% higher than the European average. 86.9% higher than the European average. This is the country where exceptionally cheap alcohol is driving it, right? What happened to fake news? Who is not, why is this not being fact-checked? Please tell me, Gary, why is this not being fact-checked? The only registered fact-checker in Ireland is the journal. So I guess it's not being fact-checked because it's the journal. I will say again, in the interest of clarity, Norway and Iceland, neither of which are in the EU, have higher prices for alcohol. And it depends on which set of Eurostat figures you look at, whether or not Ireland or Finland actually is the highest in the EU. Some say that Ireland has, some say that Finland has. But we can say with a degree of confidence, Gary, that there is no alcohol in Ireland, which is in any 
reasonable sense exceptionally cheap now what somebody will come along and say to me and says well you can buy you can buy two flagons of cider for i was told four euro i do not believe you can buy two flagons of cider for four euro gary because the last time i bought two flagons of cider was at christmas because i boiled my christmas ham in cider and it was more than four euro for the, the large two the cheapest two gallon two uh two liters flagon but that by the way gary don't worry about that don't worry little head because minimum unit alcohol pricing is galloping down the road towards us and the days of cheap cider to boil your ham in are going to be long long gone the notion the, this the notion that also that we can establish some kind of direct causal link between pricing and consumption for problematic drinkers abusive drinkers or alcoholics i'm not saying gary there are no studies out there that show that but i can tell you there are very very contested studies but what you will find is you'll say they will they will say oh look minimum unit alcohol pricing was introduced in this country and alcohol declined can you think of an example where this has happened gary you get to talk now you get to talk now i'm sorry i wasn't actually paying attention i was playing tetris <laughs> do you know on one of on one of these on one of these episodes, when this exact topic came up, you talked for 13 minutes without me saying anything. Well, it annoys me. It just, it, it, it's just really annoying. These are, these are people who just don't like drink. And I can absolutely understand that if you come from a household where somebody in that household is an alcoholic or an abusive drinker, that's a horrible thing. That is not going to give you a positive attitude towards alcohol. And I have deep sympathy for those people. We, like any, I would imagine anybody in Ireland, I've had friends who are alcoholics. I've had uh, people in my family who were connected or went out with or married to alcoholics. And it is a horrible, horrible affliction, disease, whatever you want to call it. To believe that the solution to this problem is to make alcohol more difficult to sell more awkward to get like you put two gates two lit you know those saloon doors you see in uh, in western movies that tends to have been the solution if you go to supermarkets around the world around ireland they have things like that where you touch them they're automatic they open that is going to solve the problem of what underage drinking because people under the age of 18 won't be able to work out how to get through a saloon these push doors which open up it's going to solve a f the problem of abusive drinking or alcohol how is it going to affect it in any way, shape or form? We know that alcoholics are price sensitive, but they are not brand sensitive. All of these things, Gary, and I will leave it out this. We know that the problem with all of these studies that suggest that we can find a correlation, and they're based on mathematical models. Ultimately, the Sheffield model is a mathematical model. It's not based on, on empirical observation of data. Are based on the assumption that people are basically passive subjects to government action that you change the price of something they will just oh well that's happened rather than we what will happen is what we know happens when human beings are treated like this they will find a way they will go to a different jurisdiction they will buy off the gray market they will change what they drink or they may change the stimulant of their choice they may move from alcohol to something else they will not be simply passive acceptors of some kind of nudge policy by the government while poor people and it is poor people because if you drink the only place you ever drink is in a pub you will not be affected by this which is why the vintners love it by the way the vintners are very happy with this the off licenses are happy with this because this is not a tax this is not a price which is based on increasing duty or that this is based on the base price which all that means is the margin for them goes up nothing else 
All this means it is more expensive for people in low incomes to buy a bottle of wine or a couple of cans of beer. And last point, to repeat again, unlike what people may think, poor people don't drink that much. Alcohol consumption is positively correlated with income. And that's not to say that some, people, some poor, poor people are, are, are heavy drinkers. It may be a vicious circle. It may be that poor people are heavy drinkers or people become poor because they are heavy drinkers. We don't know that there's both of those may be true. But in the generality, people who consume more alcohol are people who earn more, but they will be utterly unaffected. So if you drink Sancerre or Chateau de Pape or Champagne, nothing will change for you. But if you drink cheap whiskey or cheap gin or own brand lager or the four, the 450, 550 bottle of Chenin Blanc from Little, then you will be screwed. And all for nothing except for people to be able to sit back and enjoy the righteous smell of their own farts. But other than that, Gary, it's also a fake news story. I just think we should consider it in that fashion. From that to the rents, Michael. Oh, from the from the sublime to the ridiculous. From the sublime to the ridiculous. You know that sense that we've we all have when you have a really cool idea you're sort of half asleep on the couch and you think of something oh that's a great idea and then you say it out loud and you think oh no actually that's really stupid i'm beginning to wonder gary that there aren't people who are involved in politics and in policy making in this country who never say anything out loud and maybe repeat it and say oh how does that sound because it's hard to imagine that people who are involved in the, this particular bout of nimbyism, I mean, this is beyond nimbyism, are actually listening to themselves. Now, not for the first time, um, an academic attacking the build to rent development in Drumcondra on the site of, um, oh, it's in Clonliff, on the Clonriff Road there. Is it All Hallows? No, it's not All Hallows. Something like All Hallows. Um, Holy Cross. Holy Cross College. Anyway, they're all again this, Gary. They're all again this because it's built, lots of reasons. One, because they're only building to rent. Only to rent. You can't own your own house. Which is a curious thing for the Irish left is now so committed to the idea of a property-owning democracy. I thought they wanted everybody to live in houses where the government was the, the landlord. But there you go. It's going to be built by a US property fund. Heinz, which apparently is American, although other people are telling me it's Irish. I don't know. I don't care. 1,600, roughly, apartments to be built in a return to, quote, absentee landlordism, Gary. Now, I just finished my first observation here. By this tweet, is finished with a hashtag, Gary. Hashtag end housing crisis. Go on. No, I, I just want us all to sit here for 10 seconds and think, what's he saying is, you're going to build 1,600 apartments, right? No. Why? Because I want to end the housing crisis. People like you going around building 1,600 apartments? Jesus. I mean, that's just going to make the housing crisis worse because because of reasons, Gary. Reasons that were so complicated and mathematical that they just eluded me that, for example, I have heard it argued that if you build 1,600 apartments in this area, this will lead other landlords in the area to compete with you on your pricing so if you're renting at a high level they'll put their rents up so as Ro i think it was ronan lyons pointed that this is a wholly new development in economics where an increase in supply will lead to an increase in the price this is a new development in the intellectual wing of the irish anti-house left before it was supply has no impact on prices now it's supply negatively impacts on prices as in drives them up that's a which is pretty good i mean that's a brilliant one i would like to see 
the intellectual backing for this change. So I imagine, Michael, it's fascinating. It may have been drawn with at least eight different crayons. Oh, yeah. Uh, Councillor Alison Gilliand has tweeted, More and more residential developments are owned by faceless conglomerates whose first responsibility is to provide a return to their shareholders and not their tenants. I'm just, I'm just going to make this point because this happens constantly in Ireland with these people. We've got to stop these faceless conglomerates, these companies who only want profit from building houses. Two scenarios for Michael. You have a thousand apartments spread over however much land, owned by the same person. Mm-hmm. That's one scenario. The other scenario, you have a thousand apartments over the same spread of area, owned by a thousand different landlords. Would you assume, Michael, in the former scenario, that there may be some economies of scale, or there may be, let's say, an incentive on the landlord not to kick out tenants by saying that they're going to move their family in because they want to live there again? You know all the stuff that happens with individual landlords? You would assume that doesn't happen with someone who owns a thousand units. Or you mean that people whose actual business it is to build, rent and maintain rental accommodation might actually know something about doing this? And if you have a thousand units, you'll almost certainly be registered as a landlord and therefore more easily be in the purview of some of the regulatory agencies so that if you, let's say, Michael, don't abide by some of the requirements as to cleanliness or spacing or anything like that, it might be substantially easier to have something done about it through the regulatory arm of the state than it would be if it was an individual landlord who most likely isn't even registered as a landlord. Also, it's slightly ignoring the fact we, we're constantly told about how well they do these things in the in continental Europe, and where we don't have the same obsession, this terrible, fatal obsession with owning your own house. Although, actually, house ownership across the continent has massively increased over the last generation or so. Uh, we're actually falling behind. You know what, Gary, if you go to places like uh, Milan and, and Munich, do you know who you're going to find that a lot of these old rented, uh, long-term leased rented apartments are owned by? Faceless conglomerates. Very often insurance companies who use them as a form of capital and, of course, a form of income. But if, if faceless... Do you know what else is happening, Gary? I don't know how many times I have gone to my local Tesco's and found Mr. Cohen behind the till. I'm beginning to wonder, Gary, if Tesco, where it, which supplies me with food, or indeed Dunstores, which might provide me an Aldi and, and Little, are not actually faceless conglomerates who are not interested in me as a consumer of food, but rather only interested in the bottom line. Why isn't someone doing something about these people? Little, and by the way, Little and Aldi? They're owned by foreigners. They are. I saw it. Owned by foreigners, Gary. Living over in their foreign country. Are you saying, Michael, something like it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that you expect your dinner, but from re- their regard to their own self-interest? I say, I'm saying, Gary, a friend, uh, a friend of mine once said that he had an idea for a novel where everything in the sort of economic organisation of the country would be reversed. And instead of healthcare being provided by the state and food being provided by the private sector, it would be the other way around. Healthcare would be provided by the state and food would be provided, or healthcare would be provided by the private sector and food would be provided by the state. And since we have an experience of what it is like to have healthcare provided by the state and we have an experience of food being given by the private sector, I think we'd all have a certain expectation of how that might work out. 
what he thought it would be very thin people, but very healthy people. Yesterday I saw a headline in the Irish Times, Michael, and it was about the health service. Yeah. State-backed. It doesn't have any faceless conglomerates in there. Just conglomerates with a full public face designed to ensure the government isn't blamed. And the headline was, Up to 900,000 people may be on hospital waiting lists. Consultants warn. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Who counts anymore? I don't know. It's basically one, two, three, many. There are a lot of people. Lots of them out there. And we can't really even hire more consultants because no one is stupid enough to take that contract. No one you want to, anyway. Because, let's face it, that would involve giving the kind of money that if it was published in a newspaper, people would go, my God, you're paying that amount of money? It's like when we try to find the head of uh, cybersecurity for the state. We're like, well, we can't find anyone. And then you looked at how much they were offering and people went, God, that's a lot of money. And they went, no, no, actually, for what they're trying to find, that's not a lot of money at all. That's fucking nothing. That's nowhere near enough money. But you reach a point, Gary. Well, I have begun. You see, I'm working on the the assumption, and I know that not all of our friends will be like me, that these people are actually just wrongheaded. That they, they actually don't want people to be without a home or without the kind of home that they would like or the, that they, they have a nice comfortable place to live that the rents that are so sky high should actually come down and that people don't have to spend more than 50% of their income in order to be able to sleep indoors and they just have the wrong ideas about how you go about doing that but you get to a certain point where when every single substantial attempt to build anything is men met with howls of incoherent rage that you start to think you know is this rather than being a defect maybe this is actually part of the hardware design are they actually hoping that the whole point is let's keep the housing crisis going as long as we can in order to benefit our particular brand of politics so that people will eventually just throw their head their hands up in the air and vote for some kind of Fidel Castro style. I mean, I, I, I am otherwise beggared of a belief to understand why the hell they're doing this. I, in general, don't think that right. They don't think that's right. I think there are two things here. One, I would summarize with George Orwell quotes that some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals can believe them. There's a fair amount of that going around. Things like supply has no impact on price, all other things being equal. Stuff like that. The other thing is, I think with a lot of these people, I think this is actually the predominant thing. The perfect is the enemy of the good. They have a theoretically perfect solution to these issues. And they won't accept anything less. Because, well, I would say that one of the reasons is that because anything which is less will mean that ultimately their perfect solution will not be attempted. No, so you... you Keep going for this perfect solution and you keep saying these things. And even if someone could go, well, look, if we did it this way that you don't like, which is going to have an impact on this, it will be 90% as effective. They wouldn't go for it because they have the perfect solution and it's just about getting that implemented. And the problem is it's not being implemented. And instead they spend years talking about something which is absolutely unimplementable because most other people kind of realize that oh, it doesn't work. Or be so expensive there's no point. While totally ignoring and actually generally talking down reasonable solutions that could actually lead to gradual progression on this front. I think that's reasonable. 
but I'm just beginning to wonder if it's too reasonable. It's just so consistent, Gary. It's just so relentlessly consistent. Billing House, no, no more. Not there. Not here. Not over there. Not so many. Not too. No, that's too few. They're the wrong kind of houses. You're only building. One of the objections to this was that they were only being that they were being built primarily for young people. Well, you know that's the kind of ageist assumption that apparently you're not allowed to make. But how can you honestly look at an air and say we're going to create sixteen hundred new units for people to live in in this place and that is not going to have any effect on the supply demand curve in this place and if it does what it will do is increase the price locally maybe we should just i don't know build in iceland i i think i should for your own safety i shouldn't have agreed to talk about both the property market and minimum alcohol pricing in the same episode i'm not sure your heart can take it I don't, my head is about to explode. My heart is... <laughs> sorry, I almost went into a Mary Black song. It is... It is what it is, Gary. What it is, is a pile of shite. And we are now, I would say, what? Five, six years into officially being in a state of housing crisis? Yeah, but Michael, it's a popular pile of shite. And as we've said before, in a democracy, you get what you deserve. But is it popular, Gary? Is it popular or is it is it only popular enough for that sliver to be able to just block everything because they're in the right place? It is surprisingly popular with the right sort of people. And that's all that matters. I tell you, I bet the Taliban are building fantastic plans there. Can you imagine telling the Taliban, no, you can't. You don't have planning permission for that. <laughs> I'd like to be there. That would be fun. I'm sure you would do well in Afghanistan. I think I'd do extremely well because I have a cultural sensitivity that is rare in people. And I think they would recognise that and they'd respond to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, being a Muslim, I, I think I could manage that. I would not say I'd be a very good one. I mean, I wasn't a very good Christian. I can't imagine I'd be a very good Muslim. Well, it's good to know where you belong. Yeah, even if you don't. We will be back Sunday. Inshallah. All the best.